Well, episode two, Luke, how are you feeling? You know, I'm kind of nervous. I uh, Last was great. Last episode was great. But also, I kind of realized I was fully armed with what we were actually going to talk about, and you uh, you weren't. So I can see how I felt great and prepared, and I uh, being completely unprompted. I'm actually kind of nervous, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, I'm excited to um, to hopefully bring something that you might not know about and uh, and have you... Uh, have you be confused yeah. a little bit? I think uh, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to start this podcast is just learn how to be more uh, more curious and more vulnerable. And so, again, what better way to do that than just know nothing about the topic, A. B, record that interaction of me not knowing anything about the topic. And C, putting it online for our billions of listeners that are surely tuning into our episode. And that's, that is billion with a capital B. <laughs> with capital B emoji. Yeah, B emoji billion. So, yeah, I'm excited. I'm I'm excited to be on the other side of it this time, so let's see how it goes. Yeah, I'm excited. Ever heard of a podcast where one of the hosts has no idea what's going on? Well, now you have. Welcome to Unprompted, the show where one of the hosts shows up completely unaware of the conversation topic for the episode. From technology to society to history, life, and more, each episode features a unique topic, and the hosts unravel the details together using nothing but their background knowledge and past experiences. Hosted by Luke Bogus and Jared Arts, we hope you enjoy today's unprompted conversation. Welcome to the Unprompted Podcast. Uh, I'm Luke Bogus here with Jared Arts. Yep, that's me. Yeah, that is you. <laughs> yes. uh, I am pumped for the second episode. Definitely weird to be on the other side. Kind of nervous, but uh, you know, I say we jump right into it. I don't know about you. Yes. So, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna start a little bit different than Luke. Luke, have you ever heard of Texas? I have heard of Texas. That is, it, is a state in the Union. Yes. Yes. And so I, when we record this episode, it is uh, February 26, 2021. And Luke, what are your thoughts on Texas right now? Uh, well, it was really cold, and then it was really not cold, and uh, then it was really, you know, energy deficient. And now <laughs> it is, I don't know how it is right now. I hope they're doing good. I know it was not good for a while. I have some friends that live in Austin, and they were, you know... I would like walk to the grocery store and then they get to the grocery store and there is nothing on the shelves. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty not sweet, I would have to say. Um, but, uh, yeah, huge energy crisis. Yes. Energy. 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 I want to talk about energy today. All right. Specifically, I want to talk about power grids. And more specifically, I want to talk about virtual power plants. And so, Luke. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Here I am. I'm like, let's talk about. Generalists and specialists. Talk about a specialist conversation. <laughs> I am very interested. I know very little about the power grid. I know I know the fact that Texas has their own power grid, mm-hmm. but I've never heard of a virtual power grid. So you might have to uh, you might have to break that down for me. Yeah, so I am glad to. And I, I'm not I'm not a power grid specialist by any means. You know, I'm a I'm a computer scientist, but you know, I do have a general understanding. And so um, most power grids work in a, in a pretty specific way where you have large power generation stations, you know, your coal plants, you have nuclear stations, you know, wind farms, solar farms, and those provide power for huge numbers of people. They provide power through, through heavy transformers that allow the, the, the power to, you know, move long distances. Um, and so you see in places like Texas or, you know, sometimes in Nebraska where we are, if one of those plants goes down, or if multiple of those plants goes down, or if the line gets severed, power goes out. You know, I saw this all the time when I was growing up. I lived out in the country. We lost power, like, you know, 
every few weeks in the summer, sometimes it felt like for at least a short amount of time. You know, in Texas, you know, I've, you know, I feel for everyone down there. I hope everyone's doing better. Um, they had, to an extent, a power grid failure where a lot of their power generation methods, you know, mainly natural gas, you know, some wind turbines, some coal plants weren't able to produce because they weren't engineered up to spec. Um, and so that's traditional power grid, centralized power generation and distribution for large numbers of people. The virtual power plant or the virtual power grid is something that's very different. It is kind of like the Bitcoin. <laughs> now you have me interested. <laughs> <laughs> the Bitcoin of like power grids, so to speak. It's where you connect many small nodes, many small individual houses or companies that have you know, energy storage and generation capabilities to generate the power grid. So it's a distributed power grid. And it's something that a lot of people are working on. Some power companies are working on it. Very notably, Elon Musk with Tesla is looking into it um, because they have solar, solar panels, they have energy storage batteries. And so I wanted to kind of bring this topic up because we saw this, this massive centralized grid failure in Texas, and we see it uh, sporadically in places like California, here in the Midwest, often. And I think that that's going to be changing in the next 30 years to a more decentralized system. So I kind of want to talk about the implications of that and the, the technology that's around it and kind of the opportunities that come with that. So I guess what are your, what are your initial thoughts, what are your questions, if you have any, uh, after my pretty, pretty quick explanation on, on that? It's very interesting. Um, you know, we were talking last episode about specialists and generalists, and we definitely need some more specialists in energy right now in this country and really in the United States. I mean, I think the race for green is is fascinating um, and not necessarily that is would you say a virtual power grid is kind of synonymous with renewables or are those two separate conversations I think that it's a large portion of the virtual power grid or the virtual power plant needs to be running off renewables because very few people are going to have a coal power plant in their homes um, and so it's it's really reliant on cheap and, and available uh, renewable energy options uh, for for individuals uh, that can be connected together in, in a larger web. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, this whole, uh, you know, last couple of weeks we've been dealing with huge energy issues, even here in Lincoln, you know, there was like standardized rolling blackouts uh, to like help with the energy, you know, deficiencies. And I mean, that's just crazy to think that like, you know, I, I think this, this past couple of years has really showed us that, um, you know, things that we thought were, solid infrastructures need to be rethought. You know, we've been kind of going with this notion that we have the, you know, strongest financial system in the world. And like this couple of days ago, the New York Stock Exchange like had or was the Fed or, you know, some money agency apparently, like I just read this on The Morning Brew, which is an awesome newsletter, um, basically had like shut down like for like five hours because there was a glitch in the system. And so there was like halting all money transactions. Like, wow, like our financial system had a glitch and that halted tons of financial transactions. Same with the energy grid. Now I noticed that you know, Texas was kind of different from, you know, they have their own compared to the rest of it, but same thing. It's like things that we just take for granted at this point. Like, you know, wow, of course we have energy in here. And of course, like, I don't think about the fact that like, you know, I have my thermostat at 74 in the winter and 69 in the summer or whatever it might be. Like, you know, I, yeah, I pay higher energy prices, but like, you know, I, I pay for what I use. I'm going to just, of course, I know that I'm going to pay more if I'm going to have it be, you know, really pump the AC in the summer. But like, it's just crazy to think that the infrastructure in which 
like that is happening, like just kind of like fell apart, right? And so I, I think it's definitely now is more than ever is pertinent to actually start rethinking things that we have taken for granted so long. I mean, here, you know, we have transportation is a huge question mark, you know, in the United States, whether it would be like bullet trains and fast transportations, you know, that's stuff that like now in 2020, I feel like people are willing to have conversations about how do we, you know, fight this energy crisis of how do we integrate renewables and find ways to like not have forced rolling blackouts and forced issues like that. And same with like the, the, the financial system. I mean, things have been so up in the air here in 2021 so far. So, you know, I, I'm really curious to hear more about um, if you wouldn't mind diving into maybe some of the implications of, I guess, like what a virtual power grid entails. And I guess like what, who, who like, is that like a private versus public? Like what, like what would need to be done to make that mainstream or at least in a way to where like a, you know, non-trivial amount of the United States and or world is like reliant on something like a virtual power grid. Yeah. So I think that there's there's a lot of different aspects uh, to a problem like this. And, and the first I'd like to kind of establish some things. So one important thing is that, you know, if you get solar panels on your home, you know, some people might have this idea that if the sun isn't shining, you're not going to get power. Um, that's not really true uh, unless you're out in the middle of the woods. Uh, <laughs> but typically in any, in any you know, renewable system uh, in a house or whatever, you're going to have a two-way switch to the grid which means that when you're generating more power than you're using, you're actually, you're actually supplying the power grid with power from your house. Mm. When you're not producing enough, you're going to draw from the grid. So this is a really important aspect of what a virtual power grid is, is the fact that um, we're able to have these two-way switches where, let's just say, everyone in, in a state had, for the sake of conversation, everyone in Nebraska has solar panels. Well, some places it's sunny, some places it's not. So if some places where it's sunny are overproducing solar power, they'll put that into the grid where it might go to places where it's not sunny. That's kind of a basic idea, and that's happening right now uh, just with our, our, how our grids work now. The problem is most of that is happening at a very large scale uh, with large coal plants, large uh, nuclear, wind, farms, whatever. Virtual power grid kind of shrinks that down to individual nodes, individual houses. Um, and so that's the basic aspect of it. Public versus private is an interesting one you bring up because I brought up Tesla. I also brought up power companies. Both are kind of doing this. Uh, Tesla is looking at doing it in a private way because they want to make money. Mm-hmm. Tesla is in a unique position. They make solar panels. They make home battery storage systems to store power from uh, those solar panels. They also make cars, which have very large batteries in them. So they're in a position where they can have install solar on people's homes store that, that excess solar and batteries for when the sun isn't shining, and then move that out to the grid um, when it's necessary, and also have extra storage in their hundreds of thousands of cars that are on the road. You know, for example, you go home, you plug your car in, now your car becomes part of the grid's battery. Mm. Maybe Tesla says, you know, you give us 10% of your car battery to store grid energy into, and we'll give you however many hundred of bucks a month for that storage or... You know, so that that solves a little bit of a problem of the fact that you need a lot of storage to store renewables. Um, and so, I guess what it looks like, and, and public companies are doing similar things where they're saying, "You install solar, we'll pay for this. That will help the burden on the grid by having individual people producing." Uh, the challenge comes that how do you how do you put that all together? How do you make sure there's always enough uh, energy? Uh, one thing when we're talking about grids that's important is what's called a base load. And the base load is like, 
let's say there's a coal-fired coal power plant down the road that's always going to be producing maybe, you know, uh, a certain number of megawatts of electricity, maybe a thousand megawatts of electricity or something like that. That makes sure that there's always a bottom. There will never be less than that. And all around the, the country, grids are engineered with this base load. The problem is when that base load can't be reached. You have something like what happened in Texas or other blackouts. Um, and that's a difficult part of the virtual power grid is where you, you have to um, contri- or control all these different nodes in many different places and shift power around to make sure we maintain a base load. And it might also include things like um, traditional power generation sources. And that's why the, the transition is interesting. Um, but I think that I've rambled a little bit. I don't know if I answered any of your questions. That's but. interesting. I guess the first thing that comes to mind here is like misaligned incentives almost. And I guess I'll give a little bit of backstory to that. So my girlfriend's brother um, is an electrician in Minnesota. And he uh, lives in small town Minnesota. And he uh, was wanted to be one of the first people not even in the town, I'm pretty sure it was in the county that he lived in, to install solar on his uh, roof. So he called the, you know, electric company that he had there. I don't know, you know, if it's a more regional or a national or whatever it is, but um, essentially what the conversation led to is they said, yeah, you can go ahead and um, install the solar panels. We're just not going to, A, help reimburse you for the two-way switch, and B, we're not going to give you credits back on your energy, which like doesn't make sense, right? Because you would think that like a public, you know, like, or I guess like a power district or a power, you know, creation center, whatever you call them, um, that'd be great, right? Because yeah, you could store the loads and you mm-hmm. could like, you know, credit back people who are investing in renewables and you can, you know, use and divert that energy to other places that need it most. But, you know, it's almost interesting because then, you know, I guess I don't really know how revenues work from an energy perspective, but like, I would assume that that's like, it sounds great from like, Oh great. We have more energy now to serve to the other people. But in the long term, doesn't that like, you know, minimize revenues. If a lot of houses start to take matters into their own hands and start to rely on like public, like private companies like Tesla to install those solar panels on the roof and, you know, actually have the battery banks like in your house and utilize your Tesla. Like you were talking about mm-hmm. like the future of that. I know there's a lot of technical hurdles to get there, but like there's some tough misaligned incentives between power companies that, make money by supplying power. So therefore they want to credit you kind of because like, they're like, Oh great renewables. But at the end of the day, they're like losing money. Am I correct to saying that? So I think that it's definitely possible. Um, it, it all depends on the way power companies kind of manage it. A lot of power companies do provide credits. You know, you'd mentioned uh, your girlfriend's brother didn't get those. And that, that is a, something that happens throughout the country. Um, but a lot of them do. And like you mentioned, it is a huge plus for them especially in the short term, of, of reducing load and getting more power, that they can probably pay a pretty cheap rate for someone else's home-generated power and then put it into the grid and sell it for more. Um, but I think that uh, it does give the opportunity for them to lose money in the long term. That's something that they're afraid of. It also gives them an opportunity to change their role. Mm-hmm. Right now, the public power companies, and in most places they're public and some places they're pi- private, are the sole providers of power. They have essentially a a government-given monopoly on the power generation. And so I think that there's almost this shift of where they shift from being the sole providers of energy 
to being the baseload providers of energy. Mm. Now, we mentioned, I mentioned earlier how these baseloads are really important to provide a, a minimum floor to the amount of energy that's going to be available to the grid. And so it's important to always have a baseload. Otherwise, you're going to have problems. <laughs> uh, but then that excess energy can ebb and flow a little bit more um, freely in kind of like a free market system. And so a lot of the grid is built on is, is built by government and by government people and, and can be utilized uh, by private companies to you know, send power and whatnot. And so it's possible that you might have some system where Tesla, for example, is, is buying your energy and selling your energy almost as a competitor um, to local power companies or at least a competitor on top of the baseload of the local power companies. And so it, it is possible that if Tesla outcompetes these, these power companies, they could lose money in the long run. And we could see kind of this, this shift of who's, who's the power providers. Are, is it these public companies? And do we need the public companies? Can private companies fill this niche? Um, and then order the, the public companies or, pro, or traditional power companies just completely change their roles into mm-hmm. being kind of like a last resort seal or floor baseload providers. And these private companies take the role of selling a majority of excess power and distributing that power among different people. I think that that's an interesting question is like, how did the traditional economics of the power generation change uh, when you introduce this entirely new system? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's just like a, it's, it's like a bigger version of just you putting uh, solar panels on your home. You could say a power company say, ah, you know, we're not going to give you any power because you're taking away our business. But they're also obligated to provide power in most places because mm-hmm. that's, that's law. That's what we knew. We want electricity. Um, but at the same time, it also lessens their burden. It allows them to focus on you know smaller things because it's almost like a double-sided sword. I don't know how you feel. Yeah, about that. I see. I guess when when you say that, I mean, yeah, it sounds great. Like I think for from a um, to pull back to my you know B law class from a utilitarian perspective. <laughs> Yes, that sounds great. Having the currently served public, you know, power districts and whatever public or whatever you know power companies there are to serve the base load and rely mm-hmm. on other things. But to me, that sounds like you know at the end of the day, these public com- or these uh, power companies are they're businesses, right? They're out mm-hmm. to make money, and so you know, it sounds great that they could retreat and have smaller scales and set with the base load. But that also equals less energy they're outputting, which likely equals less that they're willing to charge for the energy, which means less money. Like you know. Basically, like, <laughs> I guess trying to equate it to like another company right now is like Intel, right? They're just kind of letting Apple and Microsoft roll all over them by mm-hmm. while they're taking their, you know, processing and chips in house. And all of a sudden, Intel is just kind of there to just, I, like, I don't know. I mean, they're receding, they're able to focus more on their things, but they're also kind of dying. And so mm-hmm. the second private or the second other companies and entities get to a point where they can be a real competitor to the you know, more regional public power districts and systems and mm-hmm. companies, you know, that's a threat to losing money. So I guess like, what, what do they do? Right. Like, mm-hmm. do they, do they band together with other do, do, I mean, there already is a lot of consolidation. Like you said, mm-hmm. like, I think here in the state of Nebraska, we have like three power providers or mm-hmm. maybe two or three power providers in general. And so it's like, you know, do they, do we consolidate? Do they consolidate to, to rival these private companies? Do they, um, like what, what, what do they do? I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think that one thing that's interesting is there is this this uh, this duality in in power generation where you have public companies which are you know kind of 
and you might have people elected to the board to, to serve on that, like, you know, Nebraska Public Power District or something like that. And you have completely private industries, which are purely run for profit. And there are, you know, and maybe that's someone like a wind turbine farm, uh, or maybe the state might help pay for certain power generation. Um, because, of course, the state, you know, the government, it's important to have power. So there are public entities that might be completely fine focusing, whereas some of the private industries, private power generators, a lot there are a lot in Texas, that's why it's an important place, wouldn't be so keen on having their uh, market share encroached upon by Tesla or someone else. That's why you see some of these private companies actually taking this virtual power plant into consideration. They're trying to get it working as well because they have a lot of this infrastructure. If a, if a private company says, hey, we're going to do this and, you know, we're going to be the ones that are are essentially being now the broker, the the marketplace. We'll be a marketplace for energy, being spot and sold in microtransactions or just controlling the distribution of energy among these many nodes of a network in this virtual power plant. They might see a new opportunity there, whereas some maybe public ones take on a purely um, a purely baseload status if they're really controlled by the government. That's the only purpose. So I think you'd almost see this weird thing where these private companies start to pivot, which is difficult because they have so much tied up in traditional power generation means to incorporate this into their existing business model to provide cheaper energy. Because it is an opportunity to provide a lot cheaper energy when you're not relying on these large plants all the time. Yeah, it's almost like you equate it to, you know, back in another business perspective, you know, when every single time a huge innovation comes, right, like the stakeholders... And like, I guess the, the majority market leaders, the, you know, oligopoly type companies uh, in those markets never seem to transition across innovations. What I mean by that is like, you know, when we went from like the printing press to the typewriter, right? The same companies that made the printing press machines, when the typewriter came out, they were like, oh, like that's whatever, like it's fine. We're just going to stick to our guns and focus on the printing press, None of those companies survived, and all of a sudden you had these big companies who were leaders in the typewriter. And then, the, obviously, this is a little different, but, like, computing came out, and all people were like, oh, like, people want, it, people want analog, people want paper, like, we're just going to focus on our guns here. And then none of the typewriter companies have basically stayed throughout, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of with electric cars, right? You have 100-plus years of, you know, these big wigs, the GMs of the world, the Fords of the world, whatever it might be. And you kind of had a little bit of a threat to that, you know, like in the early 2000s with like Kia coming out with like, you know, the 100 whatever thousand mile warranties and like they were all of a sudden a threat. But now it's kind of, you know, in the electric car world, it's interesting because it's like, you know, we're changing innovations again, right? We're going from, you know, like gas cars to electric cars and who knows if GM is going to, you know, I guess like go over the leap of this and they're going to be a huge stakeholder. It might be Tesla, obviously, we're talking about, but it might be Lucid, it might be Rivian, like, who knows? It might be these new people that capitalize and invest on these innovations in general. And so it makes you think, like, all right, so then how are these big stakeholders currently in the current market, how are they holding up? Well, GM is coming out with, you know, was it, 30 EVs by 2025, right? And so they, they're kind of playing catch-up, but at this point, they recognize that, like, they're behind and they're investing into it, um, and they're doing the right thing. So it makes you wonder... When inevitably renewables becomes wildly mainstream, right? Mm-hmm. Will it be new companies that develop things like the virtual power grid? Will it be private companies like 
Tesla and maybe any other like charging networks that like come together and they rather than just being a charging network, all of a sudden they're like an electrical system and it's these big private companies and they basically start to overtake the market share of these, you know, kind of government sponsored and or public and or private current conglomerates and current like huge people, I guess, in electric. It just makes you wonder, like, that's it's interesting that like the path forward is to just kind of like price beating them out on price, like just invest in renewables so that you can offer cheaper options to your constituents now. But like, I guess how how do like these current companies compete? Like how how do they like when you have threats like Tesla and you have threats of like you know there's there are startups out there I I believe I'm trying to even think back to a couple articles I've read before who are trying to you know do this whole like energy broker of sorts you know they're but they're like separate entities or separate mm-hmm. companies that are competing now against these more public and more, you know, I guess, mainstream energy companies out there already. So what, like, do you think that the current companies that are the, you know, stake, the big boys, so to speak, mm-hmm. are they going to stick around during this, uh, I guess, like future of the virtual power grid, the future of renewables, or is it going to be these new companies that's, that I guess crop up and those are going to be the new uh, leaders in the energy? Yeah. Grid? I think that it's certain that some are going to stick around. You know, I don't think we're going to have a complete reshuffling of, of, uh, of power, mainly because power, power is so important. You know, I don't think that a lot of these public power companies, these large public power companies, will be allowed to die by the government. Mm. I think that the government isn't going to entrust such an important thing 100% to the private sector. You look at something like, um, you know, arms production in the United States. Arms production, the private companies who make weapons and the United States government are extremely strongly linked. Uh, they're, they're, you know, there might be companies that go out of business and companies that consolidate, but by and large, there's always going to be kind of some of the large players like Lockheed Martin and, and, um, you know, other aircraft manufacturers, ship manufacturers, um, you know, weapons manufacturers who are going to stay alive for the fact that the government needs them to an extent. And so I think that some of these large public power companies will definitely stay alive um, because they'll be necessary, because the government will deem them necessary. I think that they might have a challenge competing without subsidies, especially if some of them hold on to, um, you know, traditional expensive power generation means such as coal mm-hmm. and don't transition to cheaper means such as natural gas and renewable energies. Um, but I think that some of them will stick around. For the large private entities, the large private power companies, I think that it's going to be on how quickly they can innovate and before they get replaced by private companies like Tesla, like um, any other startup that's trying to do something similar. Um, but it's also really dependent on, I, know I mentioned the government, this is a relatively regulated space because it's so important. You're seeing all these inquiries in Texas right now into the, the, the board which controls the electricity in Texas. And so a question is, if Tesla says, I want to sell power, is the Nebraska government, is the uh, you know Iowa government going to allow them to do that in their state? Because like the Nebraska government doesn't allow Tesla to sell cars here mm-hmm. directly, so w- would they allow that intrusion into their the public power company's domain? And so there's a little bit of regulation question here. Um, but one thing I'd, I'd like to kind of turn to, pivot to in this conversation is, you know, we do, one of the differences is we have distributed grids versus centralized grids. Something that might change the government's mind is the fact that a distributed grid has a lot of benefits for national security, if you think about it. 
is it easier to take out the power generation for, let's say, Nebraska when there's four main power plants? Or and it's going to be a lot more difficult when you know 50% of the houses are producing power and sharing power amongst themselves. It's a lot harder to cut off power to large portions of the state um, if you have a distributed grid. Certain portions could be cut off, but other portions will still be running, so you have overall a more useful or more defense-ready grid than if you have large centralized states. I and mean, what are your thoughts on that? On like, you know, we mentioned government regulation, but what about government um, pushes, you know, for something as important as national security in this realm? See, that's what that's what's really interesting. Is again, that goes back to kind of the common misline incentives, right? Like, do you ever think it'll get to a point where the government or where these, you know, current uh, you know, big wigs, so to speak, in the power industry are going to endorse something like, yes, you know, have solar at your house, have battery packs and have like all that stuff at your house. So I guess like, you know, the, it's interesting because it's like right now it's up to the, the, the user, it's up to the, the customer to say, you know, I want to be, because it's obviously from an environmental angle right now, right? Like the early adoption curve, so to speak, like the, the early adopters right now, it's, totally from a renewable standpoint rather than from a, you know, I guess, defense standpoint. So it's interesting because it's like right now the pitch is, you know, save the earth, maybe save some money on your electrical bills by having super high upfront costs, but it'll work out in the long term. Mm-hmm. Put a bunch of solar panels on your house. Like that's kind of, the, that's the pitch. So I'm curious what needs to happen between how do we go to the next step of the adoption curve, like, like the early mainstream people, and how do we make the leap so to speak, between those two points of, you know, oh, it's just for people who have a lot of money and who care a lot about the environment to, hey, this is something that, like, A, is the future, B, decentralizes the best way to go, C, it could save you a lot of money. I guess, like, how, how do we make the leap to make it more mainstream? Is it mm-hmm. just, is it from cost perspective? Is it just, is it installation perspective? Is it, I guess, how, how, who's, who's going to incentivize regular people mm-hmm. to take action to say, you know what? I am going to put a solar panel on my house and I am going to get a battery pack on my, like in my garage, right? Like there's no incentive to do that right now other than just like, it's good for the earth. Yeah. So like, how do you align the incentives there? So I think that it's, it's not hundred percent true that there's no incentive because it kind of depends on where you're at, right? Mm-hmm. If you're living in California, the California government's trying to give you incentives, trying to get you to install solar because California has a difficult time providing power during peak times in the summertime because there's so much power going on with air conditioning and whatnot. Mm -hmm. It's expensive for them to build out a really robust grid in that area. Um, And so they're really pushing government incentives in a way to lower public expenditure on power. And, you know, it's cheaper for them to say, let's help people install. Let's give them incentives to install solar and battery packs. And uh, let's spend maybe less money on other power generation means. Um, when you look at other places, um, I forgot the name of the power company, and I apologize. Um, but there's a power company who is saying, you know, we will pay you to install this on your home. You know, we'll pay you a certain amount every month. Essentially, you are renting out your home to mm-hmm. be a power generation station. They'll ins- install a battery pack, a solar panel, and then they take the power from that. You know, so that's almost like, they're using these people's homes, they're renting homes for building out a power plant, a virtual distributed power plant. And so I think that in terms of like what it takes to push it to mainstream, it's you have these private incentives in the form of we'll pay you to install this on your home or we'll subsidize you to install this and then we sign a contract with you to get 
you know, a certain percentage of that produced electricity and you buy a certain amount from us to everything equals out. And government incentives saying we need to ro- make our grid more robust, so we're going to provide these incentives to have people install it. It's also a cost thing. I, I don't know if you've looked at a, a grid of like the cost of solar panels or a levelized cost of wind energy over the last 20 years, mm. but it's striking, especially solar panels, how incredibly far they've dropped in price in such a short amount of time. I believe it's like 70 or 80% over the wow. last like 15 years. And so it's likely that that exponential drop is, is slowing, but it's also true that as they get cheaper, it becomes easier and easier for someone to say, hey, you know, I'll, I'm willing to make a $10,000 long-term investment on my home, which is going to increase the cost or the price of my home by 3% when I sell it, or, you know, it'll pay for itself in, you know, 12 to 15 years or something when the cost is lower. You know, 20 years ago, it was, you know, I'll pay... $25,000 and I might pay it off in 20 years. Yep. Well, that's a hard sell. You know, $10,000, 10 years might be a little bit easier of a sell. So I think that it's a, it's a combination of governmental incentives, which are important. You know, the government has always given incentives. You know, it's this, you know, some, some maybe people who are against renewables might say, oh, they're giving incentives to renewables. Well, they give incentives to the oil industry. They gave incentives to the coal and oil industry to help get started. They're giving those incentives now. The government always gives incentives to push industry in the direction it wants it to go. So I think it's government incentives are important to make this the grid more distributed and more robust. Private incentives are important from the private companies that want to get ahead in this respect. And then just a general uh, cost perspective, as cost drops, it becomes more and more normal. And also just like people talking about it. You know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been talking to you about solar. Would have been a little kid, but wouldn't mm. have been doing it. <laughs> you know, now in 2021, it's a much more... Um, common conversation. I'm going to install solar on my house. That's cool. You know, th- those conversations are less rare. So, granted, we you know we're in Nebraska. We're in Nebraska right now, but and I don't know much about the you know whole California and subsidies thing. That was kind of news to me. But you know, for me right now, it's what's really interesting about solar is it's and really installing any at home renewables is very much a service and not a product. Meaning, you know, the few people I've heard of here in Nebraska who have taken the leap to install solar, they have a solar sales rep, they come out and they do uh, kind of a consultation, they negotiate price, they, you know, bring out a crew, they do it over a couple of weeks, they install here, install, install there. And so it's a full-blown service, right? Like you ha- like you, you pitch to a salesman, you pitch to whatever. And so it's kind of like, I guess a good analogy is just like, kind of like, a, you know, CarMax and kind of like car dealerships, like, you know, it... Obviously, everyone bought cars and whatever, but the reason I think so, like car, like you know, companies like Room as going public and Carvana is so big and True Cars because you're kind of re- you're, you're you're turning something that was traditionally a service into a product, right? It's just you scroll on your phone, you find the car you want, they literally deliver it to your house. There's mm-hmm. there's no negotiation, there's no service aspect. You don't have to interact with people. It's just expediting the product. And so, one of my hunches is that I think a big kind of gap between mainstream solar adoption is yes price we're getting mm-hmm. there 15 you know what you said for a 70 percent decrease but b i think it's it's there's still too much barrier to entry i think from mm-hmm. a from a user perspective you know i don't even know where to go i like i guess tesla is like the only place i really know i guess i could google like solar panels installation in my city but i'm sure it's probably some electric company like the electrician here in town that has a contractor that you know they would help install and feed out all the electric stuff and it's like, again mm-hmm. it's a full-blown service and so 
Granted, it'll never get to a point to where it is a pure product because you can't just like get a box of solar <laughs> panels and just pop it on your roof. But I feel like another big kind of barrier is just from the distribution standpoint, I think it is still too much of a, uh, it's, it's, there's, there's no really recognizable brands yet. There's really no, there's no, uh, it's still kind of in the stage of, you know, I'm going to quote, take the leap. I'm going to, um, do what's different than my peers and go do this versus just like it being just another option. Just like, Mm -hmm. you know, I can solar or this, like when you build a new house, like I feel like it's not going to be mainstream until like, yeah, you're in new construction, you're building a brand new house for your family. And you know, it's like, okay, do I want renewables on the house? Like that just being like an automatic option and just something Mm -hmm. that's simply added to the long list of things that you build with your house. So, um, do you see that as like one of the barriers? Like, do you see it as like distribution or is that, am I totally off base? I mean, I had never really thought about that before in the way that you mentioned it, but I completely agree that it is hard, especially on an older house. If you say, oh, I want to install solar, well, then, yeah, where do you go? Everyone knows Tesla. Or I think for anyone who doesn't know, Tesla sells solar solar panels, and they're starting to sell what's called a solar roof, where mm-hmm. the shingles are solar panels. And so that's almost like an, uh, maybe an option that could be added to a new house. But you do have to find someone who's able to install it, who's trained to install it, um, and that's a little bit of a barrier to entry. That might be a great um, business opportunity ah. <laughs> is uh, who can make renewable, you know, individualized renewable energy as a product instead of a service. Mm-hmm. You know, who can make that a really easy process? I mean, I think people are trying to do that. Uh, Tesla is one of them. They, yeah, they Solar try. City is another one. Yeah, yeah. well, Solar City was bought by Tesla. Oh, interesting. Didn't know that. I'm, I'm pretty sure they were bought in 2017. Fascinating. Um, and that's that is Tesla's solar division. Wow. So, um, so Tesla has. Uh, solar and they're trying to make it a product the problem is tesla is a car company they they're they're focused in many different places so it's difficult um but i think that um i think that if if i agree if that's able to be figured out that is a significant barrier to entry for a lot of people is how do i do it also you know it's not just you know it needs to be more cost effective you know it needs to be less about oh i'm an environmental person and more about like hey this is just a smart decision uh to do long term so yeah, I completely agree that it needs to be easier. It needs to be more of a product, um, more of a, more like a water heater and less like, you know, maybe getting a roof, I guess I'd like to say, because water heaters are, you, there's a there's a, still a little bit of someone needs to come install it and do checks and stuff, but, you know, like getting a roof, you have to get a quote, you need to do this, subcontractors. So we need to get it closer to that more commoditized uh, home sur- or home product than something like construction. Do you think that the whole instance in Texas is a moment or is it a movement? Do you think that now there's going to be a ton of, you know, I guess you could obviously this past year, science has taken a huge blast and just like, um, it's, it's unfortunate to see so many people attack science the way this last year has gone. But you have to think that coming out of this pandemic, there's going to be more money than ever poured into the research of infectious disease and the research and institutes behind that. Um, is this, Kind of, I mean, obviously different scale here, but is this kind of the same thing? Is this putting a spotlight on the lack of energy infrastructure we have in this nation and we need to rethink this and that this is actually going to cause immediate change? Or is this kind of just something that has happened and now we're talking about it on the podcast and, you know, three years from now we're not, we're going to still have these same issues. Do you think it's a movement or a movement? That's tough. I think that, you know, you might not know this, Texas had a similar problem a few years ago. Mm. Uh, it was not as widespread they had similar issues with blackouts and uh, no one talks about it uh, really. Um, this one was much bigger. So it might be, it might have a more lasting impact. I think it might cause a way in that we think about energy. It might cause a change, um, cause audits 
and new plans for the grid, but I think it also will misplace those. You know, I think that a lot of people, you know, we talked about science is taking a huge hit. The amount of misinformation out there is very high. You know, there's a lot of people in Texas blaming the outage on renewable energy, blaming the outage on wind turbines, which is kind of silly um, because wind turbines work pretty well here in Nebraska and South Dakota and North Dakota in the wintertime as well. Mm. Um, You know, they might, they aren't engineered in Texas for the same conditions, though. Um, The natural gas was the largest part of their energy that failed, the Mm. natural gas plants, um, and some coal plants failed as well. Um, And so... I think that you are seeing some people taking the opportunity to push certain narratives uh, with this particular thing to restructure the grid in a different way. It looks as though some of that is trying to push Texas back towards a mainly fossil fuel energy production, which I think is a poor idea, not only for it being exceptionally centralized, but also being just more expensive overall, Mm -hmm. um, except for certain uh, types of natural gas production, which are very cheap and very efficient. and so I think you see this, this, this moment where certain people are trying to seize it. The question of whether it becomes a, a movement is just going to be, I guess, on does this happen again? Mm-hmm. Does this happen next year? If it happens next year, because we had a polar vortex, uh, they called it, uh, in 2018, I believe. I remember it was, very, it was like negative 20 here in Nebraska again. And people were like, oh, I've never heard of this before. We had another one this year. Will we have one next year? Will it be 20 degrees in Texas next year? Mm-hmm. Because if we see these, these climactic weather events uh, continue to increase in frequency as we have uh, due to climate change over the past few years, we're going to see movements, not moments. Moments, I think, will always happen with individual events, unless it's something very large like 9-11, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, movements are going to happen when we see repeated stress and people realize how oh, we are screwed, the question is, how are we going to respond? Are we going to respond with more coal plants? Are we going to respond with more wind, more solar? That's the difficult question. Um, but I think right now it's a moment, and next year we'll find out if it's a movement. So, do you have any uh, final thoughts, I guess? or Can't say I do. I, uh, I will say that was an awesome topic. Again, I think that shows the generalization of this podcast and the versatility of things that we can talk about. I... Like I said, I think the best way to grow and the best way to be more curious is putting yourself in situations where you have to ask questions and be curious. And obviously, like, you know, I, I scroll through Twitter and I read about the Texas things and I subscribe to, you know, newsletters about, you know, just kind of like emerging tech and I, I see things about energy and I kind of read it and it's whatever. But it's interesting how when you're put in a situation where, you know, somebody asks a question, you have a mic in front of you. Uh, you got to kind of like pull from those experiences and like try to think back, how can I, you know, offer thoughts to this conversation and how can I advance the conversation? So mm-hmm. um, I'd be curious, uh, I think, I think in about a year, we need to have another, like uh, a follow-up to this same topic. Cause mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I don't want to spark too much more conversation, but I, I, I wonder if it's a moment right now. I, uh, I think there's still a long way to go to unfortunately make renewables a movement. And so obviously, you know, the current administration is investing into it and there's private companies galore investing into it. But I think the focus right now is on EV and I think the rather it needs to be focused on renewables mm-hmm. um, versus just kind of one sector. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to see, uh, to see what happens in the next couple of years because inevitably it's coming. I mean, renewables are coming. And so it's a matter of, uh, I guess, who take charge. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that, you know, we started with virtual power plants, we kind of ended with uh, just straight renewables, and that's that's exciting because we're, you know, it's good to good to wonder. It's a good way, a good intellectual practice is to wonder in what you talk about. 
Uh, so I guess um, with that, uh, thanks everyone again for listening uh, to episode two. Uh, like we mentioned last time, we love feedback. I'm sure there's a lot of things that we got wrong in this episode um, just because we were talking about some complicated things. Uh, and so if you have any feedback, uh, tweet at Luke Bogus again. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, you're going to get a Twitter before the end of the season. I promise. Uh, you got you to gotta reenact it. It's, uh, uh, it's huge. It's fun. I mean, I might get a Twitter, but I won't go on it. Oh, so. <laughs> that's a step in the right direction, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so tweet at Luke Bogus if you have any, uh, any feedback or questions. Uh, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks again for listening. See ya.